Well, this past Tuesday, BJ and I had our first pastoral staff meeting since he got back. And we went up to the Traveled Cup in St. Albans. It was a beautiful day. We sat outside just drinking some coffee. We took care of a little business, but mostly we were just catching up, as you can imagine. Each of us wanted to know how things had gone for the other during this time that he was away. And at one point, BJ said to me, well, Brad, what do you think you've learned from this experience holding down the fort for eight weeks as the only pastor in town? And I had a few thoughts. But there's one in particular that stuck out to me most clearly. And that's simply how much I love our church. I love Redeeming Grace Church. I love you, the people of Redeeming Grace Church. You know, this year, this week marks the two-year anniversary of our families coming to be among you. It's been two years. And in those two years, the Lord has knit my heart to you such that my affection for you just keeps growing and growing. I love being one of your pastors. And I care about you deeply. And it's because of the care that I have for you that I'm going to share with you a concern this morning. See, this sermon series in the book of Esther has been helpful in clarifying for me a little niggle that I feel. A sense that we, as a church, have something to guard against. And it's my burden as one of your pastors that we would guard against it so that together we can grow stronger and deeper and more faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ. So here's my niggle. Here's my niggle. Are you and I living our lives, our everyday lives, with intentionality such that we're self-consciously pursuing the kingdom of God in all that we do? Are we living our lives on purpose? Or are we living life without much intentionality, a little aimlessly, getting up and doing the next thing simply because it's the next thing to do when you're a 21st century Vermonter at your particular stage of life. You just have the next thing to do, and so you do it. Are we living our lives, in other words, are we living our lives not on purpose? Now, you know what I think makes the difference between a Christian who lives on purpose, and a Christian who lives not on purpose? You know what I think makes the distinction? It's whether or not they understand the true nature of normal life, that normal life is warfare. That normal life is warfare. Your normal, everyday life is actually playing out in the middle of a battlefield. All through Esther, we've been looking at how the seed of the woman, that's Jesus and those who follow Him, are locked in a fierce, ages-long battle with the serpent and his seed, the devil and all those who follow Him. Yes, church, RGC, we're at war. And so we need to learn how to fight well. And that's why we need the book of Esther. 
Esther's part of God's essential curriculum to teach us how to fight well. And if we will allow God's word to instruct us that he might, as Psalm 18 in our call to worship said, that he might train our hands for war. Well, I think you'll find that that's actually the key to living the ordinary Christian life on purpose. So now let's wrap up our study of the book of Esther with some lessons in kingdom warfare. There's a simple outline in your bulletin. You can use that to follow along. We're not going to turn to a lot of passages today. I'm going to quote a number of passages, but rather than flip all the way through Esther, I'm mostly just going to quote them. Um, But you may want to follow along with that outline. So, some lessons in kingdom warfare from the book of Esther. Number one. Expect conflict and understand the nature of that conflict. So, okay, if we would fight well in the battle of the seeds, we first got to expect that we will experience the antagonism and the hostility of the world because of our relationship with Jesus Christ. See, no soldier in an active conflict zone is surprised when he comes under attack. And Esther helps us understand this pattern, why the world is hostile toward the church. In Esther chapter 3, we encountered the enemy's main representative, Haman, the Agagite, or the Amalekite, the historic enemy of God's people. See, Haman is promoted to the highest place above all the king's officials. But Mordecai, Mordecai is a Jew, Mordecai is a Jew living in Susa in the exile, the text says, he will not pay homage or bow down to this evil man. Even though everyone else is doing it. And because of this, Haman's filled with rage because Mordecai, and the text repeats this, did not bow down or pay homage to him. And if you remember, Haman disdains, it's too small a thing for him just to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So in his hatred, he resolves to destroy and kill and annihilate all of Mordecai's people. All the Jews in the empire are slated for destruction. And it's, it's a fairly simple equation. The Jews are under the attack because of their relationship with Mordecai, because he will not bow. And brothers and sisters, it works just the same way with you and Jesus. If you're in Christ, it works the same way. What happened? Go all the way forward to the one that Esther and Mordecai point to. Go all the way forward to Jesus. What happened to Jesus out in the wilderness during his temptations? The devil demanded that Jesus bow down before him and pay homage. After all, everybody else had. The first Adam bowed. In fact, every single human being since Adam has bowed. But Jesus refuses. He will not bow, nor will he pay homage to the evil one. And the devil's enraged. He hates Jesus. He hates Jesus' people. Because what has Jesus done for you and for me? He's broken our chains and He's stood us up on our feet so that we also no longer bow to the evil one the way we used to. No longer do we bow to Him. 
And so he hates us. We belong to Jesus now. We've quit the devil's service. We belong to a new master. Master who loves us. And because we belong to the one who will not bow, and we ourselves no longer bow, for this reason Satan hates us. And those who follow him hate us too. Not so actively or all the time or explicitly sometimes, but underneath it all, there is the hostility of the world that we experience as Christians. Jesus said to his disciples in John 15, this is the night before he died, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Sauce for the goose, sauce for the gander. And in 1 John chapter 3, the apostle teaches us the same thing. He traces the pattern all the way back to Cain and Abel. Two brothers, Cain and Abel, the first two children born into this world. Abel was a seed of the woman. But Cain was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him, John asks. Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Don't be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. In other words, this has been going on since the beginning. The devil hates us because we belong to Jesus. The world, which is Satan's domain and which lies under the power of the evil one, Jesus says, the world hates us because we will not participate in their evil deeds. We will not love the things that they love. We will not support the things that they support. We will not buy their vanities. We will not bow down to the idols that they serve. We won't do it with a chip on our shoulder, Lord willing. But we will not bow down to their idols, nor will we serve their gods. And when we do, we look really weird. Like BJ said, we're the moral unicorn. We stand out. And sometimes that care that he talked about and that walking uprightly before them that they talk about, that will earn us a hearing and that will earn us a a favor. But other times it will not. Other times it will not. Sometimes our righteous conduct, our righteous conduct, because remember, we're, we're not perfect But we are changing so that we look more and more like Jesus all the time. Our good good conduct sometimes will prick their consciences and sometimes that will make them so uncomfortable that they cannot bear to let us remain among them. And the result when that happens is persecution of various kinds and in various degrees. And we'll experience it one way in our age in Vermont and other of our brothers and sisters who are in the world and who are serving Jesus throughout the ages will experience it in different ways. And the hostility will vary in degree. The hostility will vary in intensity. But we will experience their hostility. 
because this war is fierce. It's a war to the death. And every year, the Lord's church adds to the number of her martyrs. Just because it doesn't happen in Vermont. It doesn't happen in Vermont yet. So, beloved, let us not, as Peter says, be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon us to test us as though something strange were happening to us. That's what Peter says. Don't think when you experience hostility from the world because of Jesus that something strange is happening to you. That this is some monstrous, unheard of, abnormal thing. It's business as usual for Jesus' church. Suffer hardship, Paul says to Timothy, as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. It's normal. It's normal. Expect conflict. Expect conflict. But also, rightly understand the nature of the conflict that you're in. For instance... Some Christians, sometimes we lose our way and we start equating the true spiritual battle with, say, the current culture wars. And you could look out and you could see everything that's going on in our society and the cultural trends and where things seem to be headed and you could get really worked up, either worried or really angry or really depressed about the direction that you think our country's going. And you could get more concerned about getting America back on track, whichever way you think that might ought to be. You could get more excited about that than you are about the advancement of the kingdom of God. And your heart's affections could get more tied up in which way the Senate's going to go this November than in how the people in your home group are doing. And that could capture your heart more than the things of the kingdom. And how would you know? Well, depending on how, how whatever you think is going, how it goes, you're, you either swing high or swing low. But the, but the things of the gospel don't move you in the same way. And, and that's dangerous. It shows you've, you've either conflated the conflict so that you think that the, whatever, the battle for America and the battle for Jesus' kingdom are the same thing, which they're not. Or, or you've just prioritized one over the other. Let's not get confused. See, Ephesians 6.12 reminds us about the nature of our warfare. Paul says, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. The realm of our warfare, the nature of our warfare is spiritual. And that means that right now, our primary combat mission as the people of God is to wage war against the devil by declaring the saving message to sinners who have been captured by him with the goal that they can escape his clutches even as we did once. The weapons of our warfare are the word of God directed at the souls of men, that some might be saved. So when you look at your neighbors across the street, 
Let the main concern of your heart for them not be what signs are up on their walls, what flags are flying on their lawns, what bumper stickers are on their cars. Let your heart's concern be whether or not they've bowed the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. And that leads us to the second lesson in kingdom warfare from the book of Esther. And that's trust in God's providence. Trust in God's providence. See, as we worked through the book, as we watched Esther and Mordecai battling it out with Haman and his allies, we noticed something really interesting, didn't we? And, and, and it was confusing and even troubling for, for some of you. God's name's never mentioned. It's not mentioned once. And I'm absolutely positive that that's intentional on the part of the author. Because God was never mentioned, and yet time and time again, we saw his hand operating behind the scenes to accomplish his purposes. And all the time it was very clear that he was sovereignly working out all the circumstances to bring about his people's deliverance. Just think back to all the ways in which God's providence was at work. To start with, well, when the time came for the king of Persia to choose a new queen, Esther from the Jewish people, was taken to the palace as one of the candidates. And she wasn't just one of the candidates. The text says she won grace and favor in the king's sight, more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head. She, Esther, one of the exiles of Israel, she rises to become queen of the whole Persian Empire. And that means that even before Haman emerges as an existential threat to the Jews, God already has moved his deliverer into position. She's already there, even before the threat arises. She's perfectly placed next to the king. And she has his ear. She has his favor. Who did that? God did that. Then how about the providence of Mordecai being just at the right place, just at the right time to uncover a plot against the king's life? Or even how about the providence that the king didn't reward him right away? Maybe that was disappointing to Mordecai. Apparently that wasn't the custom. Usually if you did something like that, you got a reward right away. Maybe he was disappointed at the time, but that oversight sure came handy later on, didn't it? Because at the critical juncture, the king owed Mordecai a favor. Now, meanwhile, Haman's over here with a very different mindset. He's superstitiously trying to manipulate fate. He wants to make sure that his gods will look with favor on his wicked scheme against the Jews. So he's casting lots. He's casting poor to find the lucky day. And meanwhile, the true God, whose people he's threatening, surely sits in the heavens and laughs at him. Because he's only working for his own destruction. Because right then, just when he thinks he's at the top of his game, he's getting invites for private dinners with the king and the queen. He's got his plan for the Jews all laid out. He's got something especially nasty prepared for Mordecai. He's just got to go get the king's permission for that last bit. And then comes Esther 6.1. On that night, the king could not sleep. Why is that? 
Why is that? Who gives sleep and rest? Who withholds sleep and rest? The Lord is at work. The king commands that palace records be read to him. And of all the pages, of all the volumes of Persian palace records, what page do they just happen to turn to? The account of Mordecai saving the king's life. Oh, right, says the king. I never gave him a reward. I better make that right. Listen, who's in the court? Oh, Haman. Just at that moment, he happens to arrive. He wants an audience with the king so he can get the approval to off Mordecai. Haman, my man, perfect timing. The king says, need your advice. What should we do for someone that I want to give a special honor to? Then Haman, because he imagines that the king's talking about him, proposes this elaborate honor. And then he himself, as you know, is forced to carry it all off on behalf of his enemy, Mordecai the guy he was just about to string up. And so Haman starts hurtling toward his doom until he's hanged on the very tree that he planned for Mordecai. Friends, there's nothing miraculous in it. There's no miracle in the book of Esther recorded. Not one thing is particularly unbelievable. It's the actual ordinary workings of a kingdom. Everybody's actions make sense. Everybody acts according to their own characters, really. But God is at work, overseeing all the details, all the events, all the timing, all the personalities, all the circumstances in this wonderful way so that his purposes can be accomplished and his people can be saved. It's glorious. God is at work in the details. God is at work in the mundane. And that teaches us something of of great value. It gives us two stakes that we can drive deeply into the ground, that we can ground our lives by, that we can live our lives but be. And one is that God is great. And one is that God is good. God is great. God is good. You can get a lot of mileage out of those truths. He's great and good in the particular details of your life. And that means He's providentially ordered your circumstances so that His good will can be accomplished. There's not an accident anywhere in the mix, not a coincidence anywhere in the mix. As Mordecai says to Esther when she's trying to decide if she'll risk her life and go before the king to be the intercessor, what does he say? Who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this? Well, knowing how the story ends, we know, we know God has raised her up for exactly that purpose. Brothers and sisters, do you believe that God has placed you, positioned you, with just as much care and intentionality as He placed Esther? He has. He has. He caused you to be born into a particular family, with particular parents, in a particular part of the world, in a particular time. 
He gave you a particular body with particular characteristics, whether you would be a girl, whether you would be a boy, whether you'd grow up to be short or tall, whether you'd be athletic or uncoordinated. He gave you a particular personality with unique giftings and passions and quirks with some things that come easily to you and some things that don't. He made you. He fashioned you. You're fearfully and wonderfully made. And He's shaped your journey. He's put specific opportunities and challenges in your path. He's given you a history, unique to you. Some of our histories are pretty complicated, aren't they? Sometimes our histories, our histories have some amount of pleasure, and because we live as sinners in a fallen world, our histories have some pain. He's shaped all of that. He's shaped all that to bring you to the place that you are now. And then at some point... He did a marvelous thing. He did a marvelous thing. A thing that you didn't deserve for him to do. He brought you under the hearing of the gospel. He worked out things so that someone would tell you the good news about Jesus. He didn't have to do that. And so you learned that there is a good and holy God who created you and who you're accountable to. You learned that. You learned that you were a sinner who's rebelled against Him and that your sin deserved death. But you also learned that God sent His Son Jesus into the world as the Savior and that He died on the cross for sinners like you and then rose again from the dead. And you learned furthermore that this Jesus was willing to save you if you would turn from your sin and believe in His saving sacrifice. And give yourself to follow Him. You heard somewhere from someone that gospel message. Now maybe you didn't believe it right away. Maybe you even hated it at first. Maybe you made fun of the person who told you about it. But God kept working. God kept working in you. Kept pursuing you kept hounding you with his love until finally and wonderfully you believed. And his providential care of you orchestrated all of that. He ordered all the universe up to that point to get you to a place where you would believe the gospel. It's crazy. That's how much he loved you. And now you find yourself today, in a particular season of your life, in a particular set of circumstances, living and working among particular people. Now, you might find your situation in life fairly easy right now, or you might find it very, very challenging. There's there's differences in, in where we're at this morning. But will you believe that God has placed you right where you are, at this time, at this moment, for his purposes. See, Jesus is a master strategist. He's a master general. And he positions his soldiers in their posts in exactly the right location. And if you're in Christ, 
you are one of them. Will you trust him that he has you in exactly the right place in this particular moment? That he has worked out all things so that you are right now where you are. And that's for your good and that's for his kingdom's good. Like Esther, you are where you are for such a time as this. His care actually extends to you in that very personal way such that he's put you in this place. And from there, we can easily pivot to consider the third lesson of kingdom warfare, which is this. Take opportunity anticipating victory. Take opportunity anticipating victory. Brothers and sisters, God has sovereignly positioned you and now he wants you to move out. So what did Esther do once she understood that she had come to the kingdom for such a time as this? She took advantage of the opportunity and she acted. She recognized that she was in a uniquely advantageous position to act on behalf of her people. Now, did she know what the outcome would be? No, she didn't. As far as she knew, she might be going to her death. But she went into the king anyway at the risk of her own life and interceded. And the Lord used her mightily to deliver his people and accomplish that great victory. And friends, if we realize and we recognize that we're in a great spiritual battle, with eternal souls at stake, and if we believe that King Jesus has sovereignly and providentially placed us right where we are so that his kingdom might be advanced, and then if we're willing to be obedient to his call on our lives, then we will be able to act with intentionality. And we'll work to create opportunities and take advantage of opportunities to minister the gospel. That's what we'll do. We understand we're at war. We understand that Jesus has placed us. We're ready to obey his command. Now we can act. Now, sometimes those efforts will end in disappointment. We'll get rebuffed. We'll be politely dismissed. Sometimes we'll even be reviled or doxed or ghosted. Jesus promised that it would happen sometimes. But we know it won't always be like that. And we have the authority of King Jesus to keep on going, keep on trying. And so sometimes the right thing to do is to say with Esther, well, here goes. If I perish, I perish. And we march into the fray and we try to move the gospel forward. And we trust God for the outcome. Now let's consider a few of the many opportunities that are actually available to us. So, so let's think about this. Who has God placed you with in your living situation? Let's think about your living situation. Well, that placement creates opportunities. You know, in college, my senior year, my roommates and I decided that we wanted to live in a largely freshman dorm. Why was that? Because we were, we were all upperclassmen. We could have even lived off campus, but we chose to live in a freshman dorm. It just seemed strategic. 
We sensed that freshmen who were new to campus and who were all still figuring out what they wanted to get involved in might just be more open to coming to a Bible study or checking out our Christian fellowship. So we moved into the freshman dorm. Now, I have at various points in my adult life lived with a series of roommates. Guillaume, Dan, Shadrach, Eric. Many were Christians, some were not. Why did God have me with those particular men? Why did God have BJ with Q and with Prescott for the last eight weeks? Could have been anyone. God intended that it would be Q and Prescott. And why was that? It was for his kingdom's sake, so that I, that BJ, might seek to promote the gospel in the lives of our roommates. Well, now, who do I live with? I live with the wife that he's given me, Elisa. My three children, Isaiah and Simon and Miriam. God has intentionally and sovereignly placed me with those four particular precious souls. And why has he done that? Well, so that Elisa and I may help one another on to heaven. And so that we might together teach and model the gospel for those particular little ones. So that they might one day walk with Jesus. And that's an awesome privilege that many of you have as well. When we came up and lived in Georgia, to live in Georgia, we wanted to live in a neighborhood. We wanted to live near enough to people so that we could build relationships with neighbors with the hopes that we could tell them about Jesus. Now, you don't have to do this. There's nothing wrong with going out and building a house in the country and living farther from people. But this is what we wanted. And Elisa and I prayed, God, plant us. You know which house we need. Plant us in just the right place so that we can be used by you in the lives of some of our neighbors for their eternal good. We trust that you're going to give us a house where that's your point of view, where that's your intention. And God in his providence placed us in Sherwood Forest, across from J and next to M and S with their son and Mr. L on the other side and with A and another J and their kids down the road. And there's more nearby, and we haven't met him. We want to meet him. And we believe that that's not an accident. We believe that we're there on purpose, on God's purpose. And we're trying and we're fumbling to get to know them, the particular people that he's placed us in the midst of, so that we can be a gospel witness. Who do you live with? Who do you live with? Who do you live among? You're there because God has gospel work for you to do. Will you take the opportunity? Who do you work with? Who do you work with? At IBM, I shared a workspace with a man named Damien. Muhammad was the janitor who cleaned my office. Andy was the guy who cooked my lunch on the night shift. My lead's name was Danny. I worked alongside Ezzedine and Jared and Spencer and Mesfin and Tomden and Joanne. God sovereignly placed me among those particular people. Now, I didn't get to share the gospel with all of them. Muhammad and I, for instance, had a language barrier. All I could manage to do was learn how to greet him with a greeting from his culture. He seemed to really appreciate that. 
And I tried to show him, however I could, given that we couldn't talk to one another, that I cared about him. Others of those dear people I did get to share Jesus with. And to my knowledge, not one of them has come to faith in Christ yet. But I believe God put me among them for a purpose, and I needed to take opportunity with them. Who do you work with? Are your workmates easy to get along with? Or are they stinkers? Or a few, few of both? They might be stinkers. They might make your work life pretty tough. They may be utterly unwilling at this point to hear you talk about Jesus. But why has God put you among them? It's for such a time as this. It's for his kingdom purposes. You may be the only follower of Jesus that they know. The only follower of Jesus they know. Will you pray that God will give you the intentionality to seek for gospel opportunities among them. What about our free time? What about clubs that you're involved in? What about your kids' sports teams? What about their school activities? PTA? What about the birthday parties they get invited to? What about the people you bike with? or the group you sail with, or that you sing with, or the community action committee that you're on, or the fact that you like to walk the neighborhood and so does the person next door. For crying out loud, what about the clerks at Georgia Market who check you out every week? Is that not outside the the sovereign providence of God? Of course not. Why has God put you there? It's on purpose! Why are Isaiah and Simon on the blue coach pitch team this year? Might it not be that there is some kid on the blue team and we might get to know his family outside of baseball and they might accept an invitation for Awana in the fall? God, may it be so. But this is especially where I was talking to you about the niggle that I feel. It's easy to just do all the things, all the good things, and not be intentional about them. And not desire to leverage them for the kingdom. We forget that we're at war. And we think, this is my time. Yes, I deserve a break today. Yeah, yeah, we need rest. We need rest. Rest is good. And yes, we can do things for the sheer enjoyment of doing them. That's not wrong. God gives us richly all things to enjoy. But beloved, let's be strategic. Let's be strategic. Soldiers in the middle of the battle don't really have the luxury of thinking, this is my time. And so you and I have choices. We have options. We have some skills. And we have some opportunities. And we can choose to steward all these things for the glory of God. We can work to the glory of God. We can parent to the glory of God. We can eat in the lunchroom to the glory of God. We can sail and garden and sports to the glory of God and to the furthering of his kingdom. We can choose to do that. We can choose to live on purpose. I was so encouraged. I got a text from someone in my home group. Essentially, the text was, going to a kid's birthday party. Pray for me. I'll probably be the only, un- the only believer there. Pray that I'll have a good attitude Pray that I'll represent Jesus well. Pray that I'll see it as an opportunity. Yes, that's it. That's the mindset. We're not just going to a birthday party. We're going to a birthday party for Jesus. 
That's intentionality because God put that person in that birthday party on purpose. And Esther also teaches us that we can approach these opportunities optimistically. Trusting that some of them are going to go well. See, the woman's seed is victorious, isn't it? Jesus wins, and we win. And despite the enemy's rage, the kingdom is advancing. See, Satan won't keep them all. He can't keep them all. Despite his rage, Jesus has his sheep. Jesus has his sheep. And when his sheep hear his voice, they follow him. And some of our friends and neighbors and colleagues and family members will come to him. You don't know exactly which ones they are. It may one day be the person that just shut you down when you tried to share about how Jesus saved you. And one day they may be sharing the story with someone else about how Jesus saved them. Some will believe. And that means we can sow in hope. Because Jesus tells us that the fields are white for harvest. So let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. That's Galatians 6. Finally, brothers, sisters, fourth lesson in kingdom warfare. Let us love our deliverer. Let us love the Lord who bought us, pitied us when enemies called us by his grace and taught us, gave us ears, gave us eyes. Let us love our deliverer. At the very end of the book of Esther, we read about Mordecai. It says, he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers, for he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. We labor in this war And it's a long war, a tiring war. Sometimes it's going well. Sometimes it'll be very hard. And yes, church, before long it may get harder. It may well get harder. What can we look to then to sustain us in the battle for the long haul? Well, it's looking to our captain. It's looking to the Lord Jesus Christ Because he fought for us. He fought for you. And he has prevailed. He came down to do battle for us so that we might be rescued from eternal death. If you stay, if you, by the way, are outside of the Lord Jesus Christ today, he came for sinners like you that you might be saved from your sins. And even now, he offers you the opportunity to believe so that you might have life. He's a savior. He's a good savior. A good savior who came down to do battle for us so that we might be rescued from eternal death. He came to seek our welfare because he loved us. Why did they nail him to Calvary's tree? Why? Tell me why was he there? Jesus, the helper, the healer, the friend, why? Tell me why was he there? Why should he love me? A sinner undone. Why? Tell me why should he care? I did not merit the love he has shown. Why? Tell me why should he care? 
All my iniquities on him were laid. He nailed them all to the tree. Jesus, the debt of my sin fully paid. He paid the ransom for me. See, beloved, Jesus fought the longest and the fiercest battle. He does not ask us to do what he did not first do himself. He fights from the front. He leads us in the charge against the enemy. He bore the brunt of the enemy's fury, and he has prevailed. And now he calls us to follow him into battle and fight alongside him against the serpent so that other precious souls might be rescued as we were rescued. Will we look to him? Look to him and love him and say, Yes, sir. Ready, sir. Lead on, sir. Hear the words of Hebrews 12 as we close. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Let's engage. Let's live on purpose for Jesus. Pray with me. Father, we thank you that you train our hands for war. We thank you that you don't leave us defenseless, but you give us the tools and the weapons of our warfare that we need. You give us the full armor of God that we may fight the good fight. Lord, oh God, let us be an opportunistic church. Let us be ready to take the hill when we see an opportunity. May we live every morning waking up thinking, what today would Jesus have for me? Rather than just getting up and doing the next thing. And so, Lord, let us bring many, be used by you to bring many into your kingdom. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.